Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Today, we have the honor of interviewing the amazing Dr. Doug Matheson. Dr. Matheson is a general thoracic surgeon and distinguished Hermes Grillo Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. At Massachusetts General Hospital, he was the Chief of Thoracic Surgery from 1994 to 2019 and Program Director of the Cardiothoracic Surgery Program from 1995 to 2017. He is also past president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. But what sets this awe-inspiring giant in our field apart is that he has never forgotten his roots, that amazing Midwestern work ethic and creed of building up a community, standing up for your fellow human being, looking out for each other. He has mentored numerous medical students, residents, fellows, and surgeons in our field. Join us today as we interview Dr. Doug Matheson on Same Surgeon, Different Light. Our goal today is to do a deep dive. Uh, we're gonna be looking at his journey into all the levels of leadership, his thoughts about uh, the path ahead, and some timely advice that he can share with the entire audience. Dr. Matheson, thank you for the opportunity to connect with us today. Yeah, it's great to be with you. I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> I, I apologize for my rather uh, casual appearance. Uh, we came up to our place up in New Hampshire. I'd sort of forgotten about this uh, uh, podcast. And so I came up here with no coat and tie. So uh, excuse me for the informality, but in fact, uh, I'm more of an informal person anyway. Yeah. And, and for, for our audience members who can't see, uh, just to give you the contrast in terms of how people, uh, leaders do things correctly. Uh, Dr. Matisse's in his cabin. He's in front of a fireplace uh, and I'm sitting here stuck in my office. So obviously somebody's doing it correctly, and <laughs> certainly not me. But uh, no, Dr. Matisse, thanks for taking the opportunity um, as well. Um, the first question I wanted to do is to take you back to your childhood. Um, and it's a fascinating story. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You grew up in uh, Danville, Illinois. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, a small town in the middle of the cornfield. Yep, about 30,000 people. And then your father was the principal of the high school there. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, that could be a burden sometimes, but uh, sometimes it could also be a benefit. But he was and, the principal. Uh, and and I'm, I'm hoping he I looked this Different times, so yeah. But he yeah, was an educator. He was an educator. And I'm hoping I looked this up correctly. The mascot of Danville High School was the Vikings. Is that correct? Ah, boy, you've done your homework. Correct. <laughs> uh, perfect. So we did that. Um, and uh, and uh, I don't want to leave out, I to leave out uh, Tom. I don't want to leave out my mother. Uh, okay, you know, my go mother, ahead. Mother worked at various times, but my mother was uh, one of those things that all of us need, which is a great mom. She was home with me most of the time growing up, uh, throwing the ball, playing catch. Uh, entertaining me, and uh, she was a, a great mom. I had a great mom and a great dad. Now, uh, the, the interesting thing, you know, it's, a, it's an important point that you raised, but the interesting aspect is in our field, 
a, the, the large proportion of physicians come from physician families. Um, and so obviously you weren't that. And I'm just trying to figure out how you got turned on to the medical field and what led you to becoming a surgeon in the first place. That, that is especially true of people of my generation. The, the majority, not everybody, but the majority did usually come from uh, physician families. Uh, I had an operation when I was five years old, and the surgeon was this uh, captivating, uh, larger than life, uh, twinkle in his eye, great sense of humor. And uh, he had no children, and uh, he took a special interest in me. And uh, I don't think I was necessarily a surrogate son for him, but throughout my entire educational experience, including my first years on staff at Mass General before he passed away. I stayed in touch with him. He stayed in touch with me. Every graduation, he was there. He always acknowledged it. And uh, he is truly the one who got me interested in being a surgeon. I never was interested in being anything else. And, and for me, and I've said this many times, it was the greatest gift I ever got. Watching many people trying to figure out what it is they wanted to do, I always knew what I wanted to do. I was really fortunate to be able to get to do what I wanted to do, and even more fortunate that I truly enjoyed it. So uh, I, I, I was very fortunate. That's, that's incredible. That's an amazing story. Uh, and obviously that led to your path. Um, you did your undergrad at the University of Illinois and then went to medical school at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, yep. How'd you end up in Boston? Just. Yeah, I, I'm probably the least likely uh, person to end up there. I went to Illinois for undergrad and medical, medical school because it's the only place I could afford. I applied to one medical school, which is the University of Illinois. Uh, and uh, I uh, went to uh, Boston for the interviews on a lark. Uh, there was a good friend that I met through a program at the American College of Surgeons. He was uh, at the University of Minnesota, but he went to Harvard undergrad. And he said, Doug, are you going to take the exams? Uh, come out for the exams? I said, no, I'm done. I'm, uh, I'm broke. I've done all my interviewing. Uh, I, so no, I have no intention. No one from our medical school had ever gone there. He said, if you can get there, uh, I'll put us up with some friends and I'll show you Boston and you'll enjoy it. So I scraped together some money. I took uh, uh, something called People Express, which uh, kind of lasted for about 10 years and then uh, flamed out. But it got me out there for, I don't know, 39 or $69 uh, each way. I don't remember which way, uh, which it was. But uh, that's how I got out there. I had no expectations, which probably is why I was so relaxed. Uh, they have a very, it was a very rigorous uh, uh, process. We had a, a multiple choice exam. Then we went to th uh, either two or three interviews where they theoretically could ask you anything uh, they wanted, whether it's neurosurgery, cardiothoracic surgery, urology, gynecology, anything. It was, uh, you know, anything. I prepared for it because I didn't want to go out and embarrass myself. Uh, I often think that some people don't prepare for it, even today. I prepared for it. Uh, I, uh, I looked up all the surgeons there. I kind of figured out what they were known for. And so I went out there prepared, but really with no expectations. And so for me, it was uh, pretty, pretty easy. That's, that's incredible. And so here you are this outsider that's really not the normal Harvard product per se. And obviously you thrive there. Uh, I guess the question I have for you is from your background, you know, knowing where your roots were, how did that help you in that process? You know, as you went through Harvard and, you know, the, the steeped traditional 
rigid system? I mean, how, how did you end up, you know, kind of becoming, uh, you know, part of that family over there? Yeah, well, again, as I said, I was the most unlikely person to do that. I'm not uh, uh, rigid. I'm not traditional. I don't wear a bow tie. And uh, so it was uh, something of a mystery as to how I uh, ended up there. And then it's something of a mystery as to how I stayed there all that time. I, I know that when I went there, I always felt I had something to prove. Uh, back then, it was true that they took, they had to take at least half of the internship class from Harvard. Yeah. Those of us who weren't from Harvard, when people would ask, where did you go to undergrad or medical school? Uh, all of us sort of banded together and said, we didn't have to go to Harvard to get in. And so that was how we dealt with that. Um, but it, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those uh, great institutions. Uh, it's, it was a great place to work. Uh, you had great residents who raised your performance and your, uh, how you uh, uh, tackled each job and how you learned because there was a lot of uh, unstated peer pressure. You, you never wanted to let your peers down and you never wanted to be embarrassed. So everybody worked hard, studied hard and wanted to be the best they could be. And uh, it was an institution that allowed that. Um, uh, and it was a great place to work. It had great attendings who, you know, were great role models and, uh, you know, mentors and great surgeons. It was a very different time. And you really got to know your fellow residents because we were on call every other night and every other weekend. Yeah. And uh, I know that I learned more from my fellow residents than, uh, you know, really anybody else. Uh, the first person that I uh, learned how to be a doctor was when I was an intern, Jim Kirkland, who was one year ahead of me. Jim was the most organized person. I hope he sees this. I've told him this a few times. He, he, he denies everything I'm about to say. But Go he, ahead. Taught, he, he taught me so much uh, about being a doctor, being organized, being compulsive, uh, paying attention to details. This was my second rotation as an intern and the uh, the influence he had on me was uh, uh, incalculable yeah now i i think that uh, the question comes we've seen a lot of changes that have happened in education um but a lot of the things that you're saying fortunately seems to still be in place today right the, that it's really the teams uh, especially fellow residents helping each other that, that's really that, where the bonding, that building that family that really translates out. I mean, is, is that too much of an, uh, a generalization or do you no, kind of no, I, I, uh, well? I uh, think you're absolutely right. The original question was growing up where I did and the experiences I had, how did they affect me? Uh, I played sports all my life and the teamwork and the leadership you learn from playing sports uh, really translated into uh, a surgical career. I always thought that the surgical locker room was a lot like the athletic locker room. Same yeah. sort of camaraderie, uh, the same sort of principles, working hard, uh, not wanting to let your uh, teammates down. Uh, all of those things directly translate. The other thing about growing up in a small town in the Midwest, you got to learn how to deal with lots of normal people. And, uh, you know, I worked on the railroads and on the highways and some of the toughest jobs I ever had, but I learned a lot about people. And uh, so having great parents who instilled, uh, you know, basic values, you know, work hard. If you start something, finish it, treat everybody the same. Uh, you know, um, th those are, those are principles uh, that, that go well beyond your formative years. 
and uh, are things which you know go into being a surgeon and then ultimately being a leader of a group of people. Uh, it's a brilliant advice. Um, I wanted to switch now towards. So you're at the storied institution. You're, you're getting training from the giants in the field yourself. Um, and then you joined the faculty there. And obviously, um, you're partners with Hermes Grillo, who is the godfather of tracheal surgery. But you're also joining at a time where you were still developing some of the techniques. Every, the refinements haven't happened. Uh, could you describe to us how that process was? I mean, how you were able to kind of join the practice, be able to contribute, but not feel overwhelmed by, the, by your environment, uh, so to speak, as a young faculty member. Yeah, well, um, I would say just to, to step back a little bit, uh, you know, Hermes, uh, I, I was the last person in my internship group to decide what I wanted to do. And uh, it just so happened at the end of my third year before I went to the National Institute of Health, my last two rotations were in cardiac surgery and thoracic surgery. I loved everything I did. I, I could have been a urologist, a gynecologist, a vascular surgeon, and I didn't want to give anything up. And cardiac surgery and thoracic surgery basically said I didn't have to give anything up. I could work in the neck, the chest, the heart, the vascular system, the GI tract. And uh, Hermes uh, and Earl Wilkins and Ashby Moncure were the three staff surgeons. You could not find three better people in your life. They were great teachers, role models, mentors. And the term that's used now, uh, before I really recognize it, is uh, Hermes was all of those things, and he was a sponsor. He gave me opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And uh, to me, that's a lesson that uh, all of us need to pay forward. Uh, all of us are the beneficiary of being given opportunities. Uh, and it's incumbent upon us to pass that along and, and create opportunities for other people. So when I joined Hermes, uh, I tell this story uh, pretty regularly. I came on a, a, a September 30th. He always went off to uh, Italy uh, for yeah. uh, a month of vacation. I met him in his office. And he, we talked and kind of caught up. And he said, Doug, I have three lists for you. The first list are those patients in the hospital that I want you to take care of that I've operated on. The second list is a list of patients I've already set up for you to see in the office. And the third list are a group of patients that I've scheduled surgery for, and they know you're going to be their surgeon. He wow. was like that from day one, and he was always like that. He, uh, he was the most generous person I know professionally that I've ever uh, been in contact with. And the same went for um, the way he treated me as a young staff person. Uh, he and I, uh, I could not have been further apart. He was this towering figure and I was just starting out, but he treated me um, like an equal. He would ask my advice. He and I would sit down and discuss things and look for my input. I mean, you just couldn't ask for a better way to start a surgical career, especially with somebody who was this uh, really towering figure and, and really the epitome of a professor. Uh, that's that's incredible. Do you do you think that's a rarity nowadays that um, we're not seeing enough sponsorship or enough guidance? Um, I, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, we when you talk to people, there's such a diverse variety of experiences people have, especially as a young faculty member. But I, I didn't know what your perspectives were on that. 
Well, I think we're a product of our, our upbringing, if you will. I mean, I was brought up uh, that that was the norm. Uh, the same is true of operating. When I was a resident, if you operated with Hermes, the day you walked into that room, he started taking you through cases. So he was a, an exceptional example. Uh, and I thought that was the way it should be. And that's the way I was and, and have been throughout my entire professional career. It was a different time. I mean, I think things are busier now that, you know, the number of cases are, you know, so far in excess of what we did then. So there's probably was more time for that. But the notion of providing opportunities, of uh, treating people equally, uh, you know, encouraging somebody's career, those, those really should never go out of style. And I think if you've chosen a path uh, of an academic surgeon, those are things that you sign up for. And I think you need to do those things. I, I don't think being busy or overworked uh, is an excuse for not uh, paying attention to those who are coming along that you're mentoring or sponsoring. And you, it should be something you do your entire career. Look for opportunities for those who are following you. Uh, that, that's incredible. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I want to take you to the early times during your, you, you know, your, your career, you're building your career up and specifically on tracheal surgery. I mean, what you and your group did there uh, is, is mind blowing. I mean, you took an operation that had such a high mortality and morbidity rate and you brought it systematically down. You standardized the way you did things, which wasn't really common in those days. Uh, could you just kind of explain how you went about building that program, building the practice, looking at all the different aspects of really making a difference in that field? Well, Hermes gets the uh, bulk of the credit for this. I mean, he was the most creative surgeon I've ever worked with in my life. Uh, he was uh, a somewhat of an artist. He always said he would be an architect if he wasn't a surgeon. And he would sit and think about problems. And he was, uh, you know, he was truly a perfectionist. There's, there are a lot of people who claim to be a perfectionist, uh, and some will use it as an excuse for their bad behavior, but, and they aren't really perfectionists. Hermes was a perfectionist, and it had to be done right. He thought deeply uh, about these problems. And when I joined him, I was part of that. We would talk about these things. I mean, that was one of the great things. I, I worked directly with him on the staff for 25 years. And every day we were in the hospital, we always talked to each other, whether it was about surgery, about life, about food, wine, travel. But if there was a surgical problem or we had a difficult case or an unusual case, we would talk about that because we both were fascinated by uh, thoracic surgery in the broadest sense and particularly about airway surgery. So. I, I don't want to take any credit away from him. He, he deserves the, the lion's share of the credit. Um, if I contributed to anything, it was just sort of taking what he had done, modifying it, trying to make it better. He was a tremendous person about paying attention to details. And, and I think that's one thing that characterizes our entire group of surgeons. I learned it from him and they learned it from Hermes and me. And I think if you ask them, that would be amongst the first things they would say, this is the way it was at MGH. It had to be perfect. Uh, it, 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 you had to do it until you got it right. And you needed to pay attention to every little detail. Yeah. I think another telling story, I just had this conversation with uh, one of the general surgery residents who's thinking about going into thoracic surgery. And they asked me some of these questions. And I said, well, one of the secrets I think I thought about these patients all day long. 
and all night long. And Hermes thought about him all day long and all night long. And then he got to the point where he retired. And uh, he, the couple of months leading into it and, and a couple of months leading uh, after he retired, he was very fussy. And he came to me and he said, Doug, big smile on his face. He said, you may have noticed that, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, I haven't been myself. I've been very fussy, but don't worry. I'm okay. I figured it out. Now that I'm not practicing, I don't constantly think of these patients all day long, driving to work, getting up in the middle of the night. And the freedom from that has been liberating. And I think that if you're serious about being a, a really, really, really good surgeon, it, it really requires you thinking about these people all the time. None of us know all the answers or have all the answers. But if you think about them enough, something may dawn on you, or you'll talk to somebody, or you'll ask, or never be shy about asking for help or another point of view. So uh, I think that's kind of how all this worked. And, and we were, you know, striving for perfection, which uh, uh, there's a famous Vince Lombardi quote. I, I may butcher the quote, but uh, if you strive for perfection, which can't be achieved in the process, you attain excellence. And I think that was sort of what we did. I mean, we wanted everything to be perfect, everything. Well, it's never going to be perfect. But if you have that mindset, then you, you tend to do a much better job. So I think that characterizes kind of a, our philosophy, not philosophy, but how we thought about things and how all of these things develop. Because you're right, it's, it's a lot of little details. Yeah, no, that's an incredible perspective. And no, thank you for sharing those rich stories. Um, I wanted to transition towards training and, and education. Um, uh, specifically, uh, there were a couple quotes uh, that, that came uh, from you. Uh, I think one of them was shared in your uh, presidential address, and another one is recently shared in an article. Uh, there was a series in chess about the Giants and thoracic field. But um, one of the things that you said was, whenever I talk to residents, their only concern is that they be well-trained, mm -hmm. equipped to meet the needs of their patient, and confident in their abilities. We must meet their needs. We must carefully analyze the issues, make the right choices, and continue to focus on training experts. And it's really that last phrase that I wanted to focus in on, training experts. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's almost a throwback because nowadays everybody's like, well, you have to go through different stages. You have to start at the bottom and kind of build up. But you're calling it out and saying, no, by the fact that they've chosen this field, they have declared their intention that they want to be experts and we need to be treating them that from day one. Is that a great way of summarizing what, what, yeah. what the intention was? Yeah, and I used to say that to the residents all the time. Uh, if you know people who train with me, I'm sure they remember a time or two or more where I would say, no, the goal here is when you finish, I want you to be an expert. That means you've got to you got to be serious about it. You got to pay attention to all the details. You got to read. I cannot underestimate the value of reading. Uh, you should read and read and read some more to expand that base of knowledge. You should always try to get better at what you do. And I would tell them, because this was not just me, this was everybody in our group had that same philosophy. When they finished, I thought they were experts. I said, you'll go someplace and there may be well-established uh, thoracic surgeons, but you will have seen things, done things, and you will be considered an expert and people will come to you for advice. No one ever believed me. Oh, no, there's no way. I'll be the youngest person there. And then they, I'd see them later and they'd say, you know, 
I did get asked for advice by the most senior partner. and He had never thought about it this way. So I, I do think that's just part of the dedication of being a surgeon. And I, it, it sounds a little bit odd, but I mean, I always felt like if you're a surgeon taking care of a patient, you should be an expert and you should know everything there is to know, realizing you never will, but you should at least want to do that. So it, it's always been sort of either a spoken or unspoken uh, philosophy, if you will. That's, that's, that's incredible. And, and the beauty of it is, uh, I mean, I, I think you're being too humble. I mean, in the sense that, yes, Dr. Grillo may have set the bar, but you took it to the other level. And I, I think that the direct impact that you have is when I tried, or I or others tried to do, you know, it's almost like who's on the coaching tree, right? Who, you know, when you talk about like Bill Belichick and who's part of his coaching tree, uh, and when we talk about Lombardi, uh, you know, all these famous coaches, I almost think the same way of you. I mean, it's like the people you trained, uh, you go from people like Doug Wood, who's out there in Seattle, uh, you know, I, I, there's so many other people that you've done and that impact is there. Uh, I guess the question is, did you sense their potential when they were trainees with you right from the beginning? Like, did you know that they had the potential and that it was just, you just had to instill that confidence or how, how did you go about recognizing Yeah, that? Well, I, I think, uh, I don't know that it's necessarily an innate ability, but I think the intention of always choosing great people, be they residents, faculty, colleagues, um, the intent to choose great people you know, makes your job easy. Um, uh, I, I think everybody who knows me knows that in, in our internship interviews of medical students, I start looking for people who look like they're going to be great surgeons. I don't know what they're going to be. I, I pursue them. I invite them to stuff. Uh, I'm sure you may have come across this where there are many famous examples of this. Everybody at MGH knows this, uh, it, to sometime to the dismay of the Department of Surgery, because We've been very, very lucky, and we, we have a great group of people to choose from, and we seem to get really good people. And uh, there was one in particular who I was really interested in. I pursued him for three years. Every time I'd see him, I'd ask him about thoracic surgery. I'd invite him to a lecture. I'd ask him if he wants to do a project. I'd, I'd bring him to a dinner or a postgraduate course. And then one day, I see him coming down the hall, and he kind of throws his hands up, and he says, Dr. Matishan, if you just leave me alone, I'll go into thoracic surgery. So these people who, you That's know, amazing. people say, well, you had something to do with the success of these people. Yeah, you sort of do. But, you know, these people wouldn't be successful unless they were tremendous people. And, and, and all the credit really goes to them. Sometimes you open a door. Sometimes you give an opportunity. But if they weren't who they were, they wouldn't succeed. And, and anytime somebody says that, I mean, I always tell them, no, you got to be this or you got to be this position because of who you are and what you've done and how you've accomplished it. It, it has very little to do with anybody else but yourself. Yeah. Well, uh, in terms of that talent identification, um, early on, uh, which I think a lot of people don't realize uh, – Mass General, actually, there were a lot of education paradigm shifts that started at the Mass General. You know, for example, the classic Halstead method of training people forever changed when Edward Churchill at Mass General said, no, that's not the right way to do it. We have to create a rectangular system. Uh, you know, you, you, the same number of people who start at the beginning are the same number of graduates at the very end. Um, and so 
the, the question really comes is uh, you were one of the first people that at least I had heard that said that we, we in CT surgery really need to do a better job of inviting more diversity and more people into our field. How, how did that come about? You know, was that just uh, a, just a recognition of we just need the best talent or was that you started to realize that we needed to change the way we were doing things? And I'm talking about generally in the field. Uh, how did you come about to that, that realization that we need to do a better job of inviting more people to the field? Yeah, well, again, I'll go back to being raised in Danville, Illinois, by two parents who always impressed on me, treat everybody the same, you know, treat them well, treat them fairly. Playing sports, it was Danville, Illinois is a very diverse community. It's mostly blue collar. And on sports teams, these were my friends. They were my social contacts. And I grew up in a very mixed experience like that. And you see the value of people. You realize that everybody has talents. Uh, and so I, I, I think that it, was, it really is from that. I don't think it's anything special beyond that. And I've always believed that, you know, um, 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 everybody has something to contribute. Um, I think that it's incumbent upon us uh, to try to give advantages to people. Um, bring them along. Uh, I remember in medical school, I was on the admissions committee and I had a, a discussion about somebody who, you know, the admissions committee had said, well, maybe this person shouldn't graduate. And I said, no, that's, this is a really good person. He's a, he will be a, a credit to his community, but he might take four and a half years or five years, or we need to give him tutoring. Don't lose this person who's, who's such a great person. I mean, uh, Again, all of us, you know, in, in medicine have, you know, kind of a, a baseline of abilities and intelligence. But uh, what separates, I think, most are their personal qualities. Um, and so, again, growing up, uh, you know, working on the railroad, knowing what regular people are like, uh, seeing, you know, regular people all the way through my uh, upbringing through medical school. Um, I, I think it comes from that, but it's not like a, an epiphany. It's just... You know, it's something that that's the way it should be. And I think I've always believed in that and certainly tried to uh, impress that upon others around me. That's amazing. Um, I did want to ask you how you came up with the title of your STS presidential address. Um, and for our audience members, the title was, it is the journey, not the destination. Um, can you expand on that? How did you pick up that title or yeah. what, what were you trying to really deliver to the well, audience? Well, well, I'll tell you what I, I tried to convey, and I can't tell you how shocked I was when my youngest daughter said, Dad, that's the title of a Miley Cyrus song. And I thought, oh, my God, really? How did that creep into my mind? I don't think it actually did. Uh, and what I, tried to what I tried to convey is that the great joy of being a part of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons are all these tremendous opportunities that come along, you know, as you go through the, the organization or any of these great organizations, not just the STS. And each one of those opportunities, whether it was the health policy committee, uh, you know, the education committee, all these things expose you to something that broadens your horizons, makes you a more complete person and surgeon. And that to me was really the benefit of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Anybody who goes into surgery thinking that at the end of it, you're going to become the head of something or the president of something. And I've known a number of people yeah. like that. They almost never get to do it. 
because you have to enjoy the trip along the way. And if you do, and if you, and if you pay attention to it and you do a good job, those things generally come your way. So it was really trying to emphasize the point that, you know, you don't have to be the president of the society to have a great professional experience or, or career by taking advantage of all these great opportunities that come along uh, in lots of different ways. So that was really the message. I was not trying to promote Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Very few people know that, uh, Tom, and I'm guessing now that a lot more will. Well, I, I think that if, if this if this podcast goes viral, yes, you are correct. <laughs> a lot of people are going to find out that <laughs> Miley Cyrus may, may, I may have been an inspiration. That's great. <laughs> I, I may yes. see royalties from her that she didn't know about. <laughs> Um, one of the stories that I remember you telling me personally was how you made it a point, no matter how busy you got in your clinical practice, that you, you were available and made it to all the events for your kids, whether it was a soccer yeah. game. Um, yeah. It, it, was that also from your upbringing or was that just something that it's something that you needed to do? Well, both. I mean, uh, my parents, uh, as I said, they were great parents. They were Midwestern parents. And not that this is an exclusive trait to the Midwest, but uh, I had a brother um, and whatever we did was the highest priority to them. They sat through more baseball games, football games, basketball games. Uh, fortunately, we were not uh, interested in uh, ballet or uh, piano. And they didn't have to sit through that because I'm not sure my father would have done that. But anything that had to do with sports, they were there. And, and we were the highest priority. And they, they came out to visit us. We didn't have time to visit them. Um, and so it was kind of a – that just seemed like the way it should be. And, uh, you know, I think it's an important lesson. And, and I try to tell that to every resident. Because everybody who's in surgery, you're going to work hard. And you're always going to have, you know, a disproportionate uh, – uh, commitment to the hospital, but you got to remember, you got to find time for your family. And, and when you do find that time, it has to be quality time and uh, make it important. And I always thought that, uh, and I think that's one of the beauties of thoracic surgery. Um, you can adjust your schedule. Um, and I tell the story uh, when I bring this up, that my oldest daughter was uh, in a state soccer term at a great team, uh, but you never knew when they were going to play next. And then they got to the state, uh, uh, finals and it was on a Thursday and I had an esophagectomy and so a week before I called the patient up I said Mr. So-and-so uh, you know here's the situation he said doctor you made the right decision I'm happy to have you do this operation you know a day or two later and so you can do that you can adjust your your schedule you can you can adjust a, a schedule to have time for your kids and family and the thing about going to all their events and I, I and I don't say this you know in a boastful way, but just to emphasize how important it is, everybody will figure out kind of, you know, what works for them. I always figured that they knew how hard I worked. Um, and uh, uh, if I could show up to their events, knowing that they knew how hard I worked, it meant what they did is really important because I was going to take time away from my work to be there at the three o'clock soccer game or to be out at the University of Washington watching my oldest daughter row against the University of Washington when she was in Wisconsin. So, and my daughter who played tennis, every tennis uh, match, 
uh, it, it was the right thing to do. And, and it was the most rewarding thing to do. And probably the, you know, watching those, your kids do those sorts of things. Uh, I was not very vocal on the sidelines, but uh, I always swelled with pride watching them out there performing. That's amazing. Um, another story I wanted to ask you about, um, how, how tall are you, Dr. Matisson? Well, at least I claim to be 6'4". <laughs> if they start measuring me and I start shrinking, I don't want to know that. So I tell everybody. <laughs> That's a bit. And then yeah. your hand size, is it a, it's a size nine, is that correct? Or no, eight and a half. Eight and a half. Yeah. Uh, I remember, you, the reason I bring that up is I remember you telling me that usually when you shake people's hands, I mean, your hands are obviously much larger than the vast majority of people, except for one person. And that is when you met Muhammad Ali. And yeah. you said that Muhammad Ali had the most gigantic hands that you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. Could you tell us the story of how you met him and yeah. so one what of an my influence he was? Yeah, I was at the. I loved him. He's always been my favorite athlete. Uh, you know, there was a quote I just read in some book uh, two weeks ago. It said, uh, uh, "If it's a matter of style, go with the flow. But if it's a matter of principle, stand like a rock." And I, I loved Muhammad Ali. I loved him for his athletic ability, and I loved for the things that he stood for and what he was willing to sacrifice for what he stood for. So he always was, still is. I must have a dozen books about Ali. He's on my, in my office. He's uh, the, 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 he, he possesses the point of highest honor because he's, he's my favorite athlete of which I have a number of them. So one of my best friends from uh, the residency, he and I were at the National Institute of Health together, a guy named Houston Johnson. Uh, he was interested in general surgery. He knew I loved boxing and he knew I loved Ali. And I was in the lab while he was on the clinical service and he knew I was at home. He called me and said, Doug, get over here. Muhammad Ali is visiting the clinical services at the National Institute of Health, uh, National Institute of Health Hospital. So I thought, wow, I, I'd never met him. I raced over there. Um, I didn't know where he was. So I went to our surgical floor on the elevator. As the elevator door opens, he and I were eyeball to eyeball. And I mean, it was like two inches. I almost not you know, knocked into him. And, and I said, uh, I said, champ, I said, I've always admired you, shook his hand. And it was like shaking two of my hands. It was like a, like a club and uh, powerful. And yeah, it was uh, one of the great thrills of my life to get to meet him. I met him on a couple other occasions, but the first one was the most memorable. That's incredible. And then the other hero you told me about on your desk and correct me if I'm wrong, was that you always had a picture of big poppy on your desk as well. And I'm assuming that's, of course, with the Boston sports. But the amazing thing about Big Poppy, at least to me, was he wasn't, if you look at his stats, it wasn't like he was the most prolific home run hitter or the most prolific hitter. And obviously his defensive fielding wasn't great at all. But it seemed like every big situation the Boston Red Sox had, it was him. He was the one who delivered in the clutch. Was that what you admired about him? I admired uh, the person he was. I admired the athletic skills. I admire the fact that he was probably the greatest clutch hitter that I ever watched. But my wall has only athletes on it. Uh, uh, so he's one. Ali's one. Bobby Orr, who I greatly Bobby admire. Orr, that's great. The three great people from the Celtics, Robert Parrish, uh, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale. Uh, those are the guys. Uh, Tom Brady. Um, he, had, for a while, had sort of moved into the center spot on my wall but you know once he decided to leave I, 
I tend to shift these people around. I, I used to have Pedro Martinez, who I loved. I, I love Pedro. Oh, Pedro is amazing. And then he went to the Mets, and I took, I, I took him off the wall. I told my secretary, who was a huge baseball fan, Pedro fan, I said, Arita, uh, I got to take him down. I said, you know, he broke my heart. He's going to be on my desk. If you want it, you can have it. I'm down with him. So <laughs> you can so it away. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you take Pedro down and give the picture away. That is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> True Boston fan. I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely great uh, as well. Um, I think that, uh, Dr. Matisson, um, the final parts uh, of this podcast I wanted to ask you was reflecting back thinking about all the things that you've accomplished in your career. And as you see so many changes happening in our field, what do you think are the good uh, good things that are happening? And where do you think that we still have opportunities where we need to do things better? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'd, I'd say that, you know, a challenge, I, I cannot underestimate the challenge of this COVID-19, uh, the terrible loss of life, the, uh, the incredible number of people who've, been ill and, and have lingering effects and the effects on your kids, your family, your friends, your relative, your work, your patients. I mean, to me, that is, that is one of the greatest challenges. It affects the enormity of it is just overwhelming to me. Um, so I don't think we should ever lose sight of that right now. Uh, it's certainly not behind us. And I think having sensitivity for those who've had loved ones who they've lost or been ill or people who are just dealing with the stress of how do I get my kids to school or how do I, you know, uh, take care of my elderly parents. Uh, that to me, there's been no challenge that I can remember that, that compares to that. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the specialty to me has been a great specialty. There's no better. I can never, I always tell people, I can't understand why everybody doesn't want to be a thoracic surgeon. It is <laughs> it's the best specialty in medicine. Um, I've never regretted a day of it. Uh, when I finished, I thought I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and then came to the uh, epiphany that, no, why, why spend 10 years doing both? Just focus on one. I've never regretted that. Um, uh, I think that the, you know, the biggest challenges we face now, um, clearly, you know, employment models, I think, are things that are huge changes that people have to get used to. The, the impact on people's finances and livelihood, huge things that they're current right now having to deal with. But in a broader sense, one of the great developments um, is the uh, um, evolution of getting more women into our specialty. Having been on those organizations and in those positions where that was a topic that we discussed oh, endlessly, how do we achieve that? It was always, and that this is back when it was 6% of our specialty were women. Um, and it was always my belief that um, uh, until the, the critical mass in general surgery reaches a point where there are enough women who then look around and they say, well, you know, this is a great specialty. It's, it's interesting. There's never been a day, in my opinion, where cardiothoracic surgery hasn't been the most exciting specialty. It always evolves. It has some of the greatest operations. It has technology. It's big operations, little operations, endoscopy. So the appeal has always been there, but there just weren't enough people to the critical mass wasn't there. Now, 
you know, most general surgery programs, I think our general surgery program always hovers around 50% uh, that are women. And every year we have two or three of every class interested in cardiothoracic surgery. And I drive an enormous amount of satisfaction from that. Uh, and you now slowly start to see the women going into the specialty. I believe this figure is correct, that uh, overall um, women in, in cardiothoracic surgery is about 10 or 12%. But if you look at trainees, current trainees, and that includes the four three, so you're, you know, you're covered four or five years, it's uh, well over 25%. I believe that's true. I've heard it at some of the women in surgery meetings uh, quoting that. I can't, I can't say it's absolutely accurate, but I think that's a great development. And I know that, you know, currently you alluded to it earlier, um, the effort um, uh, in the STS, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, to become more inclusive and diverse is, is long overdue. And uh, there's a workforce now devoted to that. Uh, David Cook has done a phenomenal job. He's, he's really taken this uh, on um, and uh, made enormous contributions, but there is an enormous amount that we can do in that area. So those are kind of the social or cultural aspects of our profession where we could do a lot better. Um, and then there are, you know, challenges always to, to deal with technology. To me, the, the rapid evolution of technology is the greatest challenge to our specialty because you may have been in training and never saw it, or you might have been in training as it was evolving and it was the staff who did it, or you may have, you know, finished and, and had never saw it. And now this technology comes along and you've got 30 years to be a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon. So the challenge of technology to me is, has been, is, and will continue to be important. And we need to always pay attention and figure out a way to address that, uh, the challenge of rapidly evolving technology. I think that the, the threat of others doing what we do, I, I guess I shouldn't call it a threat, but there are a lot of people who can do some of the things that we do. And I've always believed that you should never narrow yourself down. You should remain as diverse and broadly applied as possible and always wanting to do more. So the, the things that are coming along with endoscopic treatment of lung cancer, if we don't do that, we'll be victim, uh, just like the cardiac surgeons were, of cardiologists. And we were always very critical of that, uh, letting the cardiologists get the upper hand. We could run into the same thing. So I think it's incumbent upon thoracic surgeons using uh, uh, endoscopic therapies as an example we need to be at the forefront of that. We need to be involved in it. It's both uh, gastroenterology and uh, uh, pulmonology. So those are things which are challenges. And, and I think it's important to kind of constantly uh, reinvent yourself and evolve uh, as a specialist in thoracic surgery. Well, uh, Dr. Benson, I mean, uh, we, we could be going on for hours. I mean, <laughs> it's just... I mean, you're one of the most uh, generous individuals I've ever met in my life. Uh, and, uh, you know, for our audience members, just to uh, keep bring about full circle, Dr. Matisse was actually one of my oral board examiners. Uh, obviously, I was successful, but uh, we, we, he's been always great, always checking in on me. And uh, I think that was what good judgment I had back then. <laughs> Those are good judgment. <laughs> but, uh, from the bottom of our hearts, uh, thank you, Dr. Matisse. And I mean, not only for your career, 
but uh, for uh, the tremendous influence and the impact that you've done and, and for taking the time today to connect. Uh, on behalf of all of us, we're, we're grateful uh, for all that you do. Well, you're too kind, you're too generous. I appreciate your comments. Uh, but uh, I can tell you, I've, uh, I've enjoyed every day. I was a thoracic surgeon. I look forward to coming to work every day. And I was the luckiest person alive to get uh, to have a great career. and something that I enjoyed every day. And I, I really mean it when I say I can't understand why everybody doesn't want to be a thoracic surgeon. That, that, that feeling has never changed. So thanks for asking me to participate in it, Tom. Uh, I've enjoyed it, and hopefully in the end, it'll turn out okay as they look at oh, it. Oh, this will be incredibly popular. I'm, I'm confident about that. No, thank you. Thanks, All right. Yeah. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks again, Tom. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.